Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 195th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Echo Huang. Echo is the founder of Echo Wealth Management, an independent RA based in Minneapolis that oversees nearly 120 million of assets under management for 76 client households. What's unique about Echo, though, is the way she's built a niche serving corporate executives and has managed to grow the firm almost entirely by word of mouth by building her reputation within her niche. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Echo built her career starting out in the industry from scratch as an immigrant to the U.S. with just $800 in her pocket, how she started studying out finance as an undergraduate, decided that it would help her career to get a CPA license, so she joined a public accounting firm to get the requisite two years of audit experience, then transitioned to the personal financial planning division of a regional accounting firm and earned her CFP certification to build her professional credibility and help overcome the fact that she looked young when sitting across from older clients, why Echo ultimately went out on her own at a cost of losing two-thirds of her AUM to rebuild the vision of the advisory firm she wanted to build, and why as an already successful advisor in her 40s, she still decided to go back and get her CFA certification on top of juggling the challenges of growing the business and being a parent with young children. We also talk about how Echo actually built her independent advisory firm to serve the clients she wanted to serve, why she chose TD Ameritrade as her custodian, the reason she selected Salesforce as her CRM of choice, despite Redtail and Wealthbox being more popular for solo advisors, why eMoney Advisor became the hub of her financial planning services for clients, and how Echo structures her fees for clients with an AUM fee that starts at 1% on their first $1 million for portfolio management and a separate fee of up to $5,000 for the first year's financial planning meetings. And be certain to listen to the end, where Echo shares the unique challenges of being what she terms a triple minority of being Asian, female, and a new immigrant coming into the financial planning profession. The unique way that Echo views career and business risk to have made some of the key transitions she's made to advance her career. And why she views the key to success as building the confidence to believe in yourself and your own advisor value. And getting the education, study group peer support, and whatever else it takes to build that confidence in yourself. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Echo Huang. Welcome, Echo Huang, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's podcast and talking about just the the journey of, of building our own advisory firms and, and careers over time. I, I've... I've often said in the industry that, like particularly to, to younger advisors who are newer and coming in, where there's there's all this focus on, like I find like the right job and the right first firm that I can stick at and be with for my career. And then when I talk to so many advisors over the years, we virtually never stay with the firm that we start with. And it's not even a negative reflection on just firms that people start with, but just you know, we never really entirely know what we want to do in this industry and what kind of career or firm we want to build until we do something in a firm. And then we kind of figure out a little bit of what we'd like and don't like. And then we pick a second firm, which is usually the opposite of the first. 
because we just got to get away from whatever we didn't like in the first. And then, and then we do that for a bunch of years. And then after that, we finally really feel, figure out like, okay, here's the part of this business I like and what I want to do or how I want to structure my practice, or the kind of job that I want. And we make this third leap. And then by the third leap, it's like, okay, now I really actually found the thing that I want to do. And it's, and it's off to the races. And I, and I know you've had a, uh, I think kind of a similar journey to that of moving through a number of different firms in the industry over the years and having a whole lot of growth over the past couple of years if you, as you finally made this uh, sort of final leap to where you are now. And so I, I think I'm just, I'm just looking forward to talking about what that journey looks like of, of kind of building our career while at the same time just trying to figure out what I actually want this to look like. Where do I want to work? Do I want to be an employee? Do I want to be a firm owner? Do I want to be an independent? And And all the I guess the the trials and tribulations we go through along the way, just trying to figure that out and then where to land and how to actually do it. Yeah, Michael, I feel like I have gone through so much. And I think maybe what I should say is first, I should start telling people that I was born and raised in China, in southern part of China near Hong Kong. And I actually came to the U.S. by myself with $800 in my pocket, wanting to study finance. So uh, I skipped forward. I landed in, well, first in University of Idaho for one year and then transferred to Winona State University in Minnesota here. This is where I'm living now in the Twin Cities area. After school, I went to work for West Publishing Company. And now it's called the Thomson Reuters. So if you remember those legal books with West on it, yeah, that's absolutely, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. I remember, I remember those were, I remember those as uh, like reference books in studying really early in my career. Yep. Yeah, business law books in college, I paid a lot of money for. So I worked there as a cost accountant doing, you know, analyzing the cost of uh, publishing a new book and uh, determining the pricing. I did that for a year and nine months, and then I decided that I really wanted to have CPA behind my name. Even though I passed the CPA exam, I needed to have, I believe, at least two years of public accounting experience in order to use CPA uh, after my name. So I you know, started networking, and I found KPMG. At that time, it was called KPMG Pete Marwick one of the big six CPA firms in the world, I was able to get in there. They were able to sponsor me and give me full-time work visa because that if I didn't have that, I would have to go back to China. So anyway, that was a great learning opportunity. And I started in auditing, but auditing wasn't my cup of tea after after traveling to different places and living in the hotels for many weeks in a row. I was I just decided that wasn't part of my passion because, because of just curious, like because you didn't like the auditing thing, or just you didn't like the travel that goes with the auditing side. I think both. After six months, I concluded that auditing. I was auditing financial services firms. Certainly, I learned a lot more about life insurance and mutual fund. So I certainly have learned something from that experience. But the hotel life, remember, those days we didn't have, you know, today's technology. 
<laughs> so today we could do a lot of things with a laptop and you, you could communicate with people virtually. You know, earlier, we didn't have that kind of technology to really enjoy life. I mean, sometimes you could be living in a hotel. I remember my younger friends didn't really plan, invite me to some kind of events because most of the time I was out of town. So for someone who's in the 20s, that was difficult. So after six months, I started networking within KPMG. And I found out about a group called Personal Financial Planning Group in downtown Minneapolis that is under the tax services. So just remember, tax services, they do a lot of different kind of tax taxation services. But a specific group, about 20 people, mainly focus on doing personal financial planning for their executive clients. So Fortune 500 companies, executives. So I was able to get a submit my resume and they told me that if the there is position opening I would call I would be called back for an interview. So I was really fortunate. Nine months of auditing life ended, then I moved to the personal financial planning group and I became senior tax specialist and I prepared tax returns. I did tax planning, I did stock option planning and personal financial planning for a fee. At that time, we, did, we couldn't manage investments. I think I realized very quickly, I enjoyed the financial planning part of the work a lot more than tax season. I, after, the tax season is very difficult for me. I think as I was thinking about my future, someday I may have family or child. And I had to work at least 60 to 70 hours a week during tax season without a single day of break. And it was really difficult. And I decided, no, that after three three tax seasons, I decided that would not be my long-term career path. And I had to find something different. And that was my biggest kind of I would say pivotal moment in terms of my career because as a tax CPA, that was probably the most secure position for life, right? You never get fired. (laughs) I, I never heard people getting fired as a CPA. Anyway, so fortunately, I met some people who have been successful in doing financial planning. Well, first, I actually changed my job to go to RSM McLaughlin. That is also one of the very large CPA firms in the country. And the recruiter told me that they started a new service, wealth management service, and they want to hire people to start that service, brand new service within a large CPA firm. And my boss was the first financial advisor hired in downtown Minneapolis. And so he hired me. So two of us started this brand new service. We just have individual office and a laptop computer and a or something equipment. And here you go, start a new service. And so that was, a for me, it was a great experience because I, I was able to do investment management but I didn't have to do tax returns. So I was working with my colleagues who prepare tax returns and build a network there and really build a trust by telling them, you know, I have gone through all the training. I have passed my CFP exam uh, before age 30. And because I was just looking very young when I was 29, <laughs> it's always difficult to, especially 
when I was, I consider myself triple minority in personal wealth management because I'm an Asian woman and a new immigrant. And you probably don't find that many people actually doing personal financial planning, especially like in 2000. So in 2000, I changed my career and started opening some accounts. I think the hardest thing for me entering this industry was the stock market started tanking. (laughs) Remember the 90s. Remember the 90s? It was all up, right? Remember the 90s when I, I finished college 25 years ago and the market was always up. I have very little money to invest in the 90s. And then the moment I got into the financial services industry, it was all downturn. And so I had to learn so quickly what I could do to help clients in terms of managing their expectations. Because a lot of clients at that time forgot about market downturn after a long-term U.S. stock bull market. So it was very interesting at that time when you when I did a financial planning, you know, financial plan for a fee, the assumption rate of return was 8% per year. Quite a few new clients were saying, why would I hire you when you think you could only make 8% return for me? I've been getting 12% in the stock market by you know throwing, throwing darts at a dartboard for the past 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, they always come up with, you know, the hot stock uh, they heard from a cocktail party or golf with their neighbors, right? So I think I had to learn so quickly and I read a lot more books about behavioral finance and what other things I could do to help them manage emotions. One thing that worked for me was cash flow based financial planning. And so at that time, I don't think it was as common to do a financial plan for a fee. Today, it's a lot more common. But 20 years ago, it wasn't as common. And I just decided that because I, based on my training as a CPA, I I am extremely analytical and I pay attention to cash flow, especially when I was an auditor for like nine months, right? I, we looked at cash flow of companies. So I, I decided why not come up with cash flow based financial plan to show them, especially the detailed cash flow for the next five to 10 years, because most of the people, when they panic and try to hit sell button, right? They sell stocks when they were crashing because they are not very clear about where the money is coming from to pay their bills in the next several years. So that's what I had learned that worked for me. So I was uh, trying to tell people, okay, this is what you need to do. Financial planning is really important. Yes, I will diversify your portfolio, but let's come up with some kind of plan before we start talking about products. So I was there for three years as a salary employee, but I I decided to leave to start my own business in 2003. So help me understand for a moment just these these changes and turning points of like why, well, I guess I sort of get why leave the auditing side to go to personal financial planning because being on the road all the time for audit is is was not pleasant. But like why... Why personal? Like, what was the appeal for personal financial planning? I, you know, I know KPMG has a bajillion different departments. It's an absolutely monstrous firm with 
sure like a seemingly endless number of divisions and and internal transfer opportunities like why what led you towards personal financial planning were you looking for it or it just kind of landed in front of you and you went huh this looks interesting like how did you end out in that division of all the different divisions that you might have transferred to within KPMG i think partially came from my background when I was in China, I was extremely curious about business. And also another thing I uh, experienced was I actually took a job with a part-time job with H&R Block doing the tax return for one tax season, even when I wasn't with KPMG, when I was at my first job with West Publishing. So I learned a little bit along the way by myself. I, I feel that I, I want to, because I have very little money to come to this country and I had to struggle through in terms of how to make it to the next year. And I did my best to get scholarships. And so Managing my own finances with very limited resources to get through college within three and a half years. And I think I had experience that really made me believe everyone can do a little bit better in terms of personal finance, even though I didn't know that is a career path. So when I was networking with KPMG people, I know auditing wasn't my passion. So I was talking to people in tax services. They have international tax. They have, of course, state and local tax. They have people doing corporate tax returns and individual tax returns. And when I found that there is a personal financial planning group, that just stood, stood out because I was learning a lot more about how to manage my own finances and how to help people with their tax return when I had, you know, did one tax season at H&R Block. So I think for me, that is very, for me, it's more satisfying when I can solve people's individual problems and help them get to a better place financially. Compared to when I was an auditor, you know, when you go into a huge company like TCF Bank or Wells Fargo or whatever, when you go into those big banks, in general, yes, you are contributing to the team by gathering information, doing tick and tie and everything. But at the end of the day, I didn't feel the same satisfaction in terms of what problem have I solved for people. So maybe naturally I am a problem solver because of my own life experience that I had to solve all kinds of problems in related to personal finance just to get through my college. And so I think that probably was the main reason. And then, you know, Another the transition of trying to find out finding my sweet spot. You know, what is my sweet spot? So I really took a deep dive into my own skill sets and my interest. So I enjoy the planning because planning means you can be proactive now to plan for your future and take the right action to improve your situation. So naturally I am I'm more interested in the planning part of the work compared to the compliance part of the work. So tax return is compliance, right? So that's why, as I was thinking, I was always passionate about finance. 
I so even though my major was accounting, my originally I chose finance as my major. I changed my major to accounting because it would be easier for me to find a job as a foreign student, and I only had one year. To find a job in the U.S., otherwise I would have to go back to China. So I felt like, okay, now I'm in a situation where I'm not running out of money. Let's think about a little bit long term. What would I enjoy doing, like for the long term? And finance was always my passion because I was really interested in reading books about finance, even. It wasn't related to my job, so then I was like, "Well, maybe I need to change, remove the tax season. That's compliance work. At investment management, that's why the job at McLaughlin was attractive to me. It was salary job, but I knew that was a brand new opportunity for me to learn how do I start a brand new service within this huge CPA firm." With only my boss and myself, just two people, it was a good learning experience. I was going to say, like, what was the right the next piece? Like, what was the appeal to leave, like a very you well recognized, globally known, incredibly reputable firm like KPMG to to go to this sort of quote unquote startup opportunity within McGladry? Obviously, still a very well established regional accounting firm, but but a very different kind of thing to say, I'm going to go do this intra-firm startup as opposed to this incredibly well-established KPMG service with a steady stream of Fortune 500 executives that, that I get to work with. Like what, what led you to make the change and, and decide to take that kind of leap? I think mainly is because the daily task that I see is not as interesting to me anymore and I needed some change because You may you may know the compliance reason KPMG, mo they they cannot manage investment as a you know global CPA firm because of auditing clients. Are there on conflict of interest? You can't you can't you can't tell people to invest in companies that you might literally be auditing their their finances at the same time. Exactly. So certainly, as you can see, you know, after three tax seasons, I decided that's not the part of work I want to do forever. And how do I increase the work that、I、enjoy doing every single day, and remove the things that I don't like as much? So when the opportunity came, you know, the recruiter presented this opportunity. And I looked at that, and initially I said, "No, I don't want to work for another CPA firm. I just want to get out of CPA firm." <laughs> you know, it was like, "Oh, well, this is different." And the recruiter said, "This is different. You're not going to do tax returns anymore because your your colleagues would be doing tax return, but you don't do tax return." I was like, "Okay, that's good." And then, so I think it was really good way for me to learn. What is what financial financial planning is as a service? If I can incorporate investment management, so it's not just discussion about you should diversify as an allocation. It's actually going through a process to identify risk profile and decide how to construct a portfolio for this individual. So for me, the first three the three years with McLaughlin. I think I learned a lot more about how to network effectively with other professionals, such as CPAs and attorney, because that's how I could actually get any client in that environment. 
because you because you had to network internally within the firm still to actually get the other CPAs in the firm to to refer you clients and introduce you. Yes, if you think about, you know, let's say for myself as a 29-year-old brand new financial advisor, I studied the series 7 for a week and then took the exam on Monday and I was like, okay, now I I think I can call myself financial advisor. <laughs> you you know how that goes, right? I was like, oh, oh my god, that that wasn't that difficult <laughs> compared to CPA exam, it wasn't. And then I was like, okay, I could do that. And you know, when I started a job, I knew I did not have wealthy family members and friends. I can tell you this for sure because I had no money. So 29 years old, new immigrant here, and I'm try- even though I was senior tax specialist to serve the corporate executives, I mean, I, I wasn't the partner of the firm, right? I was just doing the work behind the scene at KPMG. And I wasn't able to manage these people's money anyway at that time. I was always trying to find their tax cost basis by calling Merrill Lynch broker or somebody else where they had the money, right? So when I was tax CPA. So at McLaudry, I realized I have a lot more flexibility in terms of what I can do to help people. So not only telling them to plan for the future, review their cash flow and insurance, I could actually manage their investments on their behalf. So that's why I was there. So the good thing about, you know, learning that for about three years, but certainly things change in a big corporation too. That's another reason I left because my original boss and I had a really great working relationship. And I felt that I was respected and I had a lot more room to test different software and determine what financial planning software I wanted to use. And we have done really well. And he got promoted to be a regional director. So that's a big promotion for him. But then I had a new boss. Unfortunately, I just didn't feel that he, well, he didn't hire me really. So, on, so I just feel like we didn't have the same working relationship anymore. And then shortly after, another advisor, man, Caucasian man advisor, was hired from outside. And of course, I had to teach, uh, train him about what we currently use. And then later, when I found out, you know, he's, his pay is like a manager level, and I wasn't. It just didn't seem fair to me. I certainly felt that, you know, I was the one who started from scratch. If if I should be considered for promotion, especially my boss has been promoted to much higher position. And so one day I just came home and decided, you know, it's probably not. I If I already sensed the glass ceiling when I was 32, I, I just felt like I probably need to do something different than just staying in a big corporation and try to change it. And I didn't see that I was able to change it as a really young financial advisor. So I also have done some of my own research that many limitations and restrictions within uh, CPA firms, I don't, I don't need to have that kind of limitations if I go off to more like independent uh, broker dealer. So I, dis- I have done my research to compare which firm I want to go to. And I decided at that time in 2003, March 
2003, I chose LPL Financial because at that time, LPL Financial was very small. It was two small firms merged together and about 4,000 advisors at that time. So compared to those well-known broker-dealers, I decided that LPL was more independent in terms of not promoting its own mutual funds. And, and at the same time, for me, it was just a good way to get into an institution that provides technology. And I was able to learn along the way and start building my own broker business as a solo practitioner. Back then, Linsco was, or I guess LPL was still Linsco Private Ledger, uh, you know, before the PE firms came in, before they IPO'd, before all of that, before all of that change happened. Yes, exactly. So I was a solo practitioner for almost, I think, let's see, almost three years. I was solo practitioner with the LPL. I initially, I didn't have many accounts talking about uh, how difficult it is to build a business. Before I quit my job, I, I took out a home line of, you know, home equity line, HELOC, home equity line of credit. Because I kept thinking, you know, if I don't do it now, when would I do it? Because at that time, I, did, I didn't have a child. So I was thinking, well, I, I have some uh, emergency fund because I can use HELOC. And then I, I came up with a really bare bone budget. You know, how little can I spend to get through this? Because I really didn't have a lot of AUM. You know, as you know, anybody want to start, it's like, what's your AUM? It's like, oh, I really don't know because I, I have no client right now. So, <laughs> well, no, ask me, ask me in a year or a few after I go get clients and I'll tell you if I've got any. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Michael, this is another thing. One day when I decided to, you know, I need to start my own business, I called uh, Raymond James. I called, I just went searching online for these branch managers, you know, like LPL, Raymond James. And I just picked up the phone and here's, here's my speech kind of, you know, I have all these years of tax planning experience and financial planning experience, but I do not have any asset under management. But I can build it up if you have like uh, if you are able to let me join your branch and maybe sublease like an office for me. I would you know come up with some kind of agreement and say I will pay my share of the rent, maybe pay like whatever ten to fifteen percent of my revenue to the branch manager. You you could imagine without any AUM, where do you start? I would imagine for at least a few of those branch managers, the fact that you were literally willing to search them online and cold call them probably actually made them more willing to work with you. If you're willing to cold call them, you're going to you're gonna work hard to get some clients. Oh my gosh, Michael. Now I, 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 I don't consider myself as someone who's good at cold calling. However, for at that moment, I actually had to do it. Okay. I, I didn't have a lot of other choices because my original business, I never had to do cold calling. As you could imagine, if you work for KPMG as a CPA, you, you, you never do cold calling. So I, I have never done that. So I would say first time I'm doing cold calling was trying to find a branch manager who would take me in to let me get into the industry and hopefully I could build some kind of book of business. You know, that's how I describe. Finally, I found somebody. With the LPL, I think Ameriprise wanted me too, but then I didn't 
choose Ameriprise. I didn't choose Raymond James, and I chose LPL. But anyway, so that's how I started uh, working to build my own book of business and under one branch manager. And I, I think I pay $800 for the private office for rent. And so that's how I went. I think the first year, it was really, let, let's see, how did I get through my first year? The first year, I think I made $30,000. Yeehaw. I think I did. Yeah. Yeah, that was, a, it was not negative, but you know, I, as you can see, I think for people, if they have huge mortgage and I have, they have several family members to support, I totally understand how difficult it is because when I did it, I, I was very frugal myself to get through this. And I had to come up with some kind of plan to generate financial planning fees. I charge $500 for a financial planning financial plan that I spent hours and hours to put together. Obviously, you, you today I can laugh at that, right? But at that time, when I told my colleagues, I said, "Oh yeah, I'm charging $500 for, you know, a plan." People were looking at me and said, "You can do that?" <laughs> I guess I guess in the old days, a lot of financial advisors, they were giving away, you know, advice for free, hoping to get, you know, some kind of accounts open. So at least I was charging something. So I gave myself credit for that. It's an interesting snapshot in in time that, you know, you <laughs> for the 1990s and 2000s, you know, you you started in one of the only places that actually routinely was charging standalone fees for planning, which which were the the big accounting firms that had the financial planning divisions that were doing it for the executives because they had to because of the CPA audit conflict of interest rules. But if you look at a lot of large independent RAAs today actually got formed in the 80s and 90s from people who came out of those divisions and had this fee background. So they went in the RAA channel and built instead of the instead of the broker channel back then, but the average broker dealer, even the average independent broker dealer, like there was no charging for financial plans. Like there were basically no hybrids. That's a phenomenon of just the past 10 years or so. Uh, like if you worked in an independent broker dealer, you got paid to sell mutual funds. Like that was basically the deal, mutual funds and, and some variable annuities. And, you know, for me, it was uh, initially because I could not be picky about, you know, minimums and things like that. I, I, I had initially I had no minimum. But what I wanted to do is I tried to get every single client to pay me $500 so that I can go through the planning because my experience has been regardless how much money they want me to manage, if I actually get through the financial plan. They are more, they trust me a lot more. And then over time, they, they are not going to just fire me because they lost money in the stock market. So I feel like I learned, it took me maybe a year to two years to finally feel a lot more confident about raising my fee. But at least I think the first year and two, at least I had some income coming in when I had very little AUM. But then three years later, I was able to get to close to 20 million. So that was three years later, you know, of hard work. I could tell you that I, I work all the time. I really didn't rest. 
That's why I want people to remember. You know, when you get something started, you you believe this is what you should be doing. You especially, it's like my baby, and I I feel like I have to succeed, right? So I constantly working because I was a solo practitioner. I have no assistant, and I just couldn't even take vacation because I felt like if I take a vacation, what happened? There's nobody could you know do the, this thing for me. So for for three years, that's how I did it, and then after my daughter was born, I decided to merge my practice with another firm. They because they just switched out of New England Financial, they changed the broker dealer to LPL. They wanted me to help them because I am so familiar with LPL system already. And so in a way, I decided to merge with that firm instead of hiring someone as a full-time employee. So I merged with my last firm as a minority owner. And so I had about $20 million, you know, AUM at that time and merged together. And so I was at my former firm for almost 10 years. And I think the in terms of success and struggle I had for, for that new merger was it took so much longer for them to transfer money from out of New England Financial to LPL. And as you know, those days there was no DocuSign. Everything is paper. It was. It just took a long time for, for the firm to truly get organized. For me, I felt like it was like one year not really being productive to grow. So I was there just get through the first year trying to, you know, help help them get organized as well. And while marketing to Fortune 500 companies. So my because of my experience previously working with Fortune 500 companies, executives, I decided that would be my kind of like sweet spot in terms of marketing. Of course, after several years of being my on my own, I had a lot more confidence to actually go out there and say, hey, you know, I have done this in my early, uh, 20s for <laughs> corporate executives for, you know, at KPMG, they charge like 4000 to $6,000 for each financial plan. And so then I was able to grow my client base to have a lot more corporate executives when I was there. The challenge there was, remember we went through this hybrid RAA phase and I was part of the person who oversaw the entire transition at that firm because I was a backup OSJ so I had a serious 24 license. So one of my business partners it has his Sears 24. So he was the branch manager, but I am the backup if, if needed. And during this, we decided to go uh, hybrid at a LPL. Remember LPL, I think now Raymond James, but re- I think it was 2010, decided to go, okay, since most of our revenue is from the fee-based program and the commission is pretty much dwindling to less than 10%. So it was a good decision to say, okay, let's just do hybrid. So the assets still remain at LPL, using LPL as a custodian. And, you know, then you kind of save some fees in a way. Yeah, so that was, that took, what, probably 90 days to six months or whatever. You have to go through a transition with paper. 
you have to read paper everything too. So there's no easy way to get around. But anyway, I think my my later my cha- major challenge was two of the founding principles left, and I was still a minority owner. And then there were new owners coming from outside. I went through a period of transition, probably about two years. I was questioning why I was there. So when we are talking about success, I I will have to tell you that. On the surface, everything was looking great, but deep down, when I felt that the new partnership just didn't work as well as should be, and I, as a minority owner, I was there for almost ten years, but I have very little ownership, and I helped the firm grow over te- a decade. Right, so originally, I thought I would be a really important part of like succession plan. You probably heard this story many times when it didn't happen as I expected, and then because the because there were older founding partners that are on a track to retire, and and then and then they finally left, and they didn't succession to you. They just brought in other new senior partners to take over their clients and their shares over top of you. Yeah. So so in in any merger or acquisition, you know there are. Obviously, there are conflicts all the time. Depending on you know, hey, if I work so much, I feel like maybe there should be some kind of compensation plan that would, you know, reward people's hard work in a more equitable way, not just solely based on how much you, how many percent you own, right? On、um, the profit distribution, so it's it's difficult when when two of the original founders left and then there was not. Uh, any legal documents that really guarantee any additional shares for me because of my previous contribution to the firm. So there were some kind of verbal promises before, but as you know, that 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 really doesn't count. If you said something, I would do this for you. It's not legal paper. So I think in the end, I think I probably struggled. Through about two years and questioning whether I could change the culture or change the system, just by myself. But I think in the end, I decided it's probably better for everyone to have this divorce. I call this divorce because you know I decided to leave. Five, let's see, February two thousand fifteen. So five and a half years ago, five and a half years ago, I decided to leave. And start Echo Wealth Management, a independent and independent RIA on my own, without any employees. Just all, I feel like I'm starting things all over again. And I, I told myself this time, I'm older, I'm wiser. I think I, I have more people in terms of network in the community. I was also studying for CFA designation. So I felt like, well, you know, maybe I would just start all over again. So that's how I got started. In terms of that was, of course, another pivotal moment. Do do I stay or do I leave? So if you ask me today, I certainly believe that was a really good decision for myself. Well, no, I'm I'm struck. Just you, you have had these regular turning points in your in your career. You know, you were at KPMG and decided that. That you weren't happy with the kind of work and the the travel life and the road, so you went and tried to find something different, and then you 
build for a while at KPMG, but decided ultimately that you know that sort of work wasn't giving you the the breadth of exposure that you wanted. So you went and found something different, and then you did that work at McGladry for a while, but you know feeling like you're finding a glass ceiling there, even though you were 32. So you went and found something different, and just I'm 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 struck. I mean, there are a lot of us out there that for better or worse, like we may get into situations where, you know, this environment doesn't quite work for me, or I'm not finding the opportunities I want, but change and taking that leap to something different is so hard for a lot of us that I'm, I'm just struck. You, you, you seem to have this ability to say, well, then I'm just going to go do something different. And if I have to start over, I'm going to start over again, that you just seem to have a comfort in doing that, that I'm, I'm, I'm struck by. So I don't know if that's like a natural inclination or something you do to psych yourself up when you got to make these changes. Like how, how do you get to the point of making those leaps when a lot of us really have trouble making those leaps? Yeah, maybe I also should tell people that even though I'm very analytical, I also have done some assessments. One early assessment is called Kobe. I did that right before I started my first business with LPL. So I did the Kobe test. I think today is still about $50 for the Kobe test. It will ta- test your, uh, it's a natural kind of strength and how you, you know, how you take action and stuff. But anyway, there are, you know, out of four, the score, I was, I had the highest score in quick start. So quick start, you know, if you look at the definition there is you, I thrive, I love, you know, trying new things, take on new challenges and constantly have new ideas. So for myself, before, I mean, I quit my job, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But then after I have that, you know, assessment done, and I was reading all these things, and I said, you know what, I think my natural strength is to try new things. And because I'm not afraid of trying new things, and I am okay, if some things do not turn out exactly as I have planned, I think I get a lot more energy from knowing that I'm actually creative, you know what I mean? So I I can be really creative in terms of ideas, the things I want to try. And I don't find energy if I am in a box that I have to follow very rigid rules without any flexibility. So I can I can already see myself in, you know, like early 30s, I I will do better in terms of being more productive and more creative if I'm in an environment where I can be I'm okay to fail. That's really important for me to tell myself. It's okay to fail and then decide what I have learned from this failure and what I will change going forward. So I think as I look back right now, 20 years in wealth management, and I certainly have made enough mistakes. I'm sure I could probably pinpoint a few mistakes I make, but I just don't want to let myself down. You know, I don't want to criticize myself too hard because I just made a few mistakes because I think if I pick myself up and move on and it would be okay. Maybe, Michael, another reason I want to let you know, maybe people can kind of think of 
if I came to this country with only $800 in my pocket and my English wasn't good <laughs> and I had to make it, <laughs> yeah. hey, w- what could be worse than that? Yeah, this industry is hard, but it's not that hard. So if you got through that, like this, this ain't going to be that bad at the end of the day. I know. That's actually when I when I decided to quit, start Echo Wealth Management. I, 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 I had some time to reflect in terms of my life because I, I said, you know, what is the worst situation? And the worst situation is not as many clients want to work with me because I am going out and hang my own shingle, right? That's The worst situation is the people you think they they want to work with you. But in fact, they just say, you know, maybe I don't. That's one risk. The other risk would be I may have to work extra hard for another year before I could afford hiring an employee. So I was trying to think of, you know, hey, a business plan I, I wrote for myself this time, you know, is more thorough than the first time I started a business. I actually spent some time interviewing custodians. I I went to a Schwab conference and I interviewed different vendors for technology and I have done some due diligence before I actually launched my business because in my mind I said you know what this time what are the major things I I need to make sure I make the good decisions. So I end up with several decisions. I still believe I I made a really good decision today. So one is custodians. So LPL, when I was with LPL, LPL was really a good choice, probably for the first five to six years when I was there. And then later, uh, what I realized the limitation with LPL was its own technology they created on their own does not really integrate very well with any outside technology. So unlike TD Ameritrade, as you probably well aware of, you know, when a company decided to be open architecture, you are able to get all these creative solutions, other vendors, their outside vendors develop technologies that your advisor may want to use and they all can integrate. So I think for several years at LPL, I went to the national conference. It The biggest complaint that I wrote it, you know, like suggestion for improvement was integration with outside technology. How can you make that easier for me to do business every day? So as I was looking into custodian, I think TD Ameritrade, was my top choice in terms of, you know, if I'm going to start from, I have to repaper everything anyway. So why not choose something that I believe I can do very well, especially when I had no employee. Practically, I have to learn all the technology by myself after, oh, this is very crazy when I think about it, Michael. I had changed every single technology except financial planning software and Microsoft Outlook. I changed every single thing. So let me name it, okay? I changed my custodian. So I used TD Ameritrade as my primary. I used Schwab as my secondary. And, and then... And sorry, I'm just out of curiosity on that. Like, why, why two? Why 
Why the and Schwab? I probably don't really need to, but at that time I had relationship with Schwab. I when I was with my former firm, I already built that relationship with Schwab at that time. So they knew me. So I felt like, well, I'm going off on my own. They didn't say they would cut off. So I was like, well, if if they didn't cut me off, I have some accounts at Schwab, and those clients don't need to change to TD Ameritrade. So for me, at that moment, it wasn't difficult decision to have two. It wasn't like I have to try really hard to go and get Schwab because I that was the relationship I actually had. So you weren't you weren't. Going out to pick and start with two custodians, you just already had a relationship with Schwab from the the hybrid times of LPL and said, okay, I actually want to build with TD Meritrade when I go out as an independent RIA, but I'm not going to terminate my Schwab relationship and my client assets that are there. Exactly. It wasn't a lot of money. They probably would not cry today if I just moved money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's It was just there. It wasn't a big chunk of money, but it wasn't like I decided to go and start a brand new relationship at the moment I start my business to go for two. I would normally, I would suggest people to start with one because probably simpler for people if they really need to come up with. I I like the relationship with TD. So that's one thing, major decision I had to make. The second decision I have to make is CRM, you know. As you know, on your podcast, many people have said what tools they use they cannot live without. CRM is one. So I decided to to use Salesforce, and that is the version created by Kong Center Services, Salary. So they branded it because they modified the Salesforce for financial planning business. So based on my research, that probably is easier for me to use. I know TD Ameritrade has its own version too. So as you know, many companies have their own modified versions uh, of Salesforce. So I think that was a good decision because before that, I was using Juncture for almost, I think, nine years or eight years. So I was used to Juncture but unfortunately, I think Juncture didn't do as a good job in terms of migrating to the cloud. And so they actually just continued the desktop version. And obviously, you know, today everything's in the cloud. So I was actually happy that I changed to Salesforce the moment I started my business. And out of curiosity, why, why Salesforce and not Redtail, Wealthbox, all the other in independent advisor CRM systems that are out there? I didn't look at Wealthbox, but I looked at Redtail. My conclusion is this. I think for people want the firm to remain relatively small, I think Redtail is probably just fine. I think the learning curve for Redtail is probably not as steep as Salesforce, but I have a big dream for my firm. I, I want I don't want to switch to another CRM if my firm gets to a really large size. And based on my research, Salesforce is the leader in this area. So that's based on my research of where this company is going. So it, of course, there are some features probably much easier to use in Redtail. But I, I personally look at it and say, you know what? I talk to different people about Salesforce and I realize Salesforce is something that can be f- for very, very long term. And the way they have 
how much money they have put in. And it's just more robust, just in case my company gets beyond this 10 people firm or whatever. You know what I mean? So I just didn't want to be someday and say, oh, why didn't I choose something more robust that can be customized? Because because you had aspirations for growing growing very large over time. And I, I believe that if a company that has that capability to serve to serve you know like fortune 500 companies they probably will invest in the latest technology and the cloud and all the innovation that we see in the future so i'm trying to look further down the road than just this year or next year so what else you um, i'm kind of struck by this journey of choosing systems so so custodian you went with td ameritrade it sounds like primarily for just the the sheer openness of how many integration partners they had because you wanted uh you wanted integrations that's what you felt you were missing at LPL you chose Salesforce because you wanted something that could that could grow with you and scale with you you did the accelerate overlay from Concenter so that's a little bit more out of the box relevant for the industry than Salesforce base which is not not always terribly tied into the to our industry if you just buy the plain vanilla out of the box. What else was part of the, the tech stack when you went out and launched? Very important paperless system. I had decided that from day one, I'm going to go 100% paperless for my office. It's not just for you know cost cutting, it's for the environment. And I am a true believer in that if I invest in this technology and we will all be more efficient, I did not know the pandemic is coming, obviously, but just think about how crazy it would be if I'm not paperless, right? So anyway, so I decide the first, so currently I use paperless as LaserFish. So LaserFish is a technology you could, you know, meet the SEC requirement to have everything timestamped in terms of not keeping paper files. I, so that's really important for me. And then another piece, remember I had to learn everything from uh, within like three weeks because I have no employee, right? So I had to learn DocuSign because <laughs> previously as a partner at a former firm, I never had to worry about preparing account, account forms and transfer forms. So I didn't do it for like almost 10 years. And then suddenly, obviously, the technology has changed so much. And I had to learn DocuSign. And I had to learn how to how to do FedEx too, which I never needed to do myself. Oh, another really two important decisions. I do not want to deal with billing. I do not want to worry about account aggregation every single day. So I interviewed Black Diamond and Orion. So I interviewed those two before. So I decided to choose Orion. And I, without Orion's support, I would not be able to do grow my business today because I I realized how much time I think at my former firm, how much time spent on you know if you just hire someone employee sitting in the back room, you have to make sure account aggregation portfolio you know performance reports are all correct, and then you have to worry about quarterly billing. I mean, quarter building is like a major project. So with Orion, I don't have to worry about downloading data every single day. I don't have to worry. 
the building quarter of the building went just relatively smooth. And then also I had client portal that is iPhone app, mobile app. It works on Android too. That client can use to check their, you know, look at the transactions and everything. So that was really important decision for me to make right from the beginning. And then another important decision was outsource IT. So I decided to work with a firm in, it's not in town here. Uh, it's called the Right Size Solutions. The company mainly serves, I think, small to mid-sized financial services firms as the IT consultant. So that's where, so I don't have to have any data or server in my office because everything is in, you know, it's a remote desktop. So because it's a remote desktop, it doesn't matter if I was working in my physical office or home office or at a hotel. Yeah, so I, I believe those executive decisions I made five and a half years ago made the big difference in, in terms of how, how, what I'm doing today. Interesting. And so, so help us understand as you were taking this leap, like how did the, how'd the leap and transition go? I guess, like, did you have clients as you get started? What clients came with you? Like, what did it look like as you were getting going? in 2015 from a, a, a client's revenue perspective? Yeah, here, I, I think fortunately this time I didn't have to start 100% from zero. <laughs> so in a way, I think a year later, if I counted back, I think I probably had about 25 to 35 million that came with me. So, but that was, you know, it didn't come with me like day one because I, I remember I really had, I didn't pay myself until the ninth month. So in a way, you know, finally, if I look at 12 months in the business and I said, you know, hey, what type of client decided to actually work with me? And then I think I had anywhere between 25 to 30 million came from the, you know, the client I used to serve. And so as you went out on your own, what was the vision for the firm at the end of the day? Like who, what, what clients were you going to go after? What kind of firm or vision were you building towards? It's, it sounds like as you were getting to this point, you had a, a pretty strong sense of what you wanted to go after. So what was the, what was the plan for the firm when you went out on your own? I want to take the complexity out of wealth management for very busy, successful professionals, mainly corporate executives with stock options and equity compensation. Because, and they, in general, they, the age is normally 45 to 55. And they are the people I have enjoyed working the most. And also, I have seen I can actually maximize the benefit the most. Because in general, when people face complexity, especially if they get promoted to director or VP, now they have a whole range of compensation. They need to understand stock options, restricted stock performance shares, and then they have to decide, do I elect to defer income? There's deferred compensation plan. And then they also have a pension. So in a way, I because I used to live in that world when I did the financial planning for those people. So for me, it wasn't complicated, especially when I decided to use, I started using e-money 
in 2005. So when I started using e-money in 2005, it was so expensive because I was with LPL. You, you paid like per client, I think, back then, right? Oh, let me tell you, if I'm not wrong, it's somewhere between 300 or 350 per client per year. Per client per year. Per year. And you know, when I, this is really funny as we started talking, why I, I can tell people I'm a power user of e-money simply because when I tested different software, obviously since 2000 and then on my own 2003, I was looking at it. I was like, well, for the clients I was serving, executive clients with stock options and all these grants I want to monitor, many softwares do not even have a place for you to enter equity compensation. So that was one thing I eliminated a lot of software when they don't even have a place for me to put that. And the other hand, I said, you know, if if we ignore that component, the financial plan is not even accurate. It's a major compensation for these people. And then I decided after a while, I said, you know, cash flow planning is so important. That's the lesson I have learned myself and for my client. So E-money is a cash flow plan based financial plan. So every single thing I can see and I can dive in the cash flow detail year by year. I can see, you know, I can see exactly how I want when to exercise option, when the restricted stock vest, and I can build in pension and everything in the cash flow. So I decided to at that time, as you could imagine, that was a lot of money for the fee. So for, for my <laughs> so initially I was doing that for mainly these executive clients. So I decided that I had to charge more fee in because this overhead cost was, you know, it's just way too expensive. So I had to raise my fee in order to justify. But after several years, I would say three or four years, I was talking to LPL one day. I was speaking to the, the financial planning department. I told them, I said, you know, you guys need to in negotiate a corporate contract with e-money. Either I made a difference or somebody else said the same thing. But I think that year, LPL had a corporate contract with e-money. So then all the LPL financial advisors just pay monthly fee for unlimited clients. So I felt like I did something probably help out a lot of financial advisors at LPL because I was and the a one. significant fee break for you if you have a lot of clients, right? Like a couple hundred dollars per client adds up real quick. So because that was the main tool for me to help clients and, and charge a fee. So I, of course, the fee increased to complex case could be 4000 to 5000 a year if it's a com- very complex. The simple one, we may charge 2500 you know what I mean? So you can kind of see, depending on complexity, is it two husband and wife work for two different companies? That would take a lot more time for me to understand the corporate benefit and everything. But at least I was charging fee to do financial planning and offering a, you know, this cash flow based financial plan that they can see. I love the account aggregation feature. I think today, at that time, that was probably most cutting edge because 
I was able to see all the position and everything pull in from their 401k, from the bank account and whatever E-Trade account where they have, you know. So I was able to offer something at that time, I think maybe relatively new. And because I was able to learn this tool very well, I, I became pretty efficient when I, you know, did the presentation or teach my colleagues how to do it. So I think looking back, I started this from scratch. I said, it's not 100% scratch, but on technology front, I start from almost everything brand new. So I only remember my outlook is still the same. My uh, e-money is the same. Not exactly the same because I went for the street version. As an independent person, I'm not using LPL version anymore. So I just went straight to you know e-money. So be able to use the e-money version. They call it whatever, street version or full version or something like that. So only two things that I didn't change. Everything changed. So I was watching tutorials, like a video. I think the four, first four weeks of my, <laughs> let, let me try to remember, March and April. March and April, five years ago, I was learning everything about technology and trying to set a goal and say, I need to get to 25 million AUM someday. Then I'm going to hire a full-time employee. I was just telling myself because my- and then- and then they can deal with all this technology stuff. I work 12 hours a day, six days a week for the first six months. And my daughter has her little office in my office suite where she could play with her whatever she games and stuff for all day on Saturday. And for Sunday is the day that I actually said to myself, I have to exercise. <laughs> I need to exercise and I need to sleep. Thankfully, six months later, I get to the milestone that I set for myself. It was 25 million. And then I started looking for my first full-time employee. And then, yeah. So that's that's how I got started in this whole whole thing. So so talk to us then about what the what the business looks like today like what's the current what's the current snapshot of of echo wealth management right now right now i manage close to 120 million so that's the aum piece of the business so 76 clients and out of 76 i just counted today nine of them are the young adults because they are children of our client so in, in my head, you know, I need to count them as a client, but they are not really the same as my other, like a full planning. So kind of the, the core business is about 67. Yeah, I would say we have 67 clients and I counted, I still have three planning clients who don't have money invested yet. So that is still in the planning phase. And I have two small 401k plans because those two clients are, business owners. So there is really small 401k plan. So that's where I am in terms of AUM. But I, I think I mentioned to you that the way I offer services, I want to break it apart to services, separate contract. I choose the financial planning service as it has its own contract. And then the investment management agreement is separate. That's based on AUM. And the way I 
there is no perfect way to charge. I have thought of different alternatives, and I decided to stick with this for now because here's my rationale for doing this. Because for the financial planning fees, based on my experience, especially the clients I target, you know, I want to target. There's no easy way to do high quality job without spending X number of hours. There's no easy way. I just can't tell people, oh, you give me the money, I'm just going to do planning for you, by the way. So I decided that that should be separate. And for every single new client, they will sign a financial planning agreement to pay me for the first 12 months to go through what I consider about four meetings the first year and address their financial goals in different areas of financial planning using e-money platform. So that is a first year fee. As I said, 2,500 to 5,000 is normally the range depending on the complexity. And then on the investment management, my fee schedule is published right on my company website. We charge 1% for the first million, 0.8% for the next 2 million, and then 0.6% for the next 7 million. So it's pretty easy for people to read. I decided just put it out there for transparency. And it's probably easier because if people read the website, they know they say, well, the fee is right spelled out. I guess if they're not interested in paying fees, they don't really need to call me, right? Oh, makes a lot. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier. You don't you don't talk to a lot of people who aren't qualified and willing to pay for your fees when you just put your fees out there because if they see that and it's not going to work for them, if you're not even in the right neighborhood, you're not going to have the conversation and save yourself some time. If it's at least close and they have to be convinced, well, then they're probably going to call and you can have that conversation and you can try to you can try to convince them. Yeah, and on, also on the other hand, I decided that Earlier in my career, there were some really good clients for me to have, but they didn't have much AUM. Let me give you one example. Let's say 42 years old, newly promoted director for a Fortune 500 company and have three young children going to private school. And, you know, but that person wants a trusted financial advisor to build a long-term relationship and just monitor everything for for him. So a lot of criteria I want I want to check in terms of setting client is number one first, I need to enjoy conversation with that person. <laughs> I need to be able to, you know, if somebody calls, I actually want to pick up the phone and talk to that person. That's really important. And the second thing is I really want to explain my business philosophy in terms of transparency and more comprehensive financial planning. So and building a long-term relationship based on trust and in- integrity. So I really want that person to understand that I'm in this for the long haul, and these are my philosophies. And those are a lot more like important criteria. So, And then by the time I get to the bottom and say the AUM, here's my requirement. I said, you know, I can promise you that if I am able to manage your money more proactively, I certainly believe I can do a better job because I am actually helping you grow along the way. So I want them to believe right away at the beginning that if I waive this kind of, you know, AUM requirement for like a lot of big firms have a million or half a million, whatever, 
I just need them to understand from the beginning. If I take you on as a client and you see this as long term relationship, I want you to know I expect you to let me manage your surplus savings going forward. So as long as the conversation is relatively clear, I think for the white type of people, they go through the financial plan and they see the value. And then in the long term, they're like, yeah, Echo, I want you to help me save more. So in a way, we, you know, the example for this 42 or 43-year-old director initially probably like 150000 because after the 401k, you know, all the money is in stock option, but it's just received it yet. It's not vested until like, you know, many years down the road. So I think right now, even today, I still look for the right type of client that's not as simple as AUM. So I want to find the right type of client I see has a really great long-term potential and I will enjoy working with this family. And I really want to focus on the people I enjoy working with. I think that's more important than anything else. So help me understand just this growth path. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really struck that you know, at the end of the day, you had this this pathway of you know some time at KPMG, some time at McLadry. Ultimately, you went out on your own in the early two thousands over the span of you know, like ten plus years in the in the business with LPL. You'd grown this like twenty or thirty million dollar client base. You made the transition in twenty fifteen. You went out on your own. You brought twenty to thirty million dollars with you, and then like. Poof, five years later, it's gone from 20, 20 something to 120 million when it took you 10 plus years to get to the the first 20 or 30. So, so I guess I'm wondering, like, what what changed and where on earth are you going and finding all these executive clients when you're out on your own, hanging your own shingle and 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 representing yourself? I am quite amazed as I look back, you know, the, the stock boom market certainly helped. <laughs> it's true, right? You know, the market growth has been a big component as well. And then, but I think I only have two clients who found me on the internet. All the, the rest of the client is word of mouth, mostly is existing clients. I think existing client is the major uh, source for the referral. And the way I have, I, I believe that if I do a great job for my clients, they actually do want to help more of their friends or families or colleagues just by telling them that, you know, hey, I can trust Echo. You know, this is my experience in terms of working with her team. And so I personally believe that referral from existing client is still going to be the most important part of my growth plan. And so I looked at this and say, I have uh, more than 50% of the client clients are actually corporate executives with Fortune 500 companies. And the, the other are some successful entrepreneurs and some, you know, from other companies, maybe not Fortune 500 companies. But since majority is Fortune 500 companies, I just believe that, you know, if I do that so well, I need to keep doing it, right? So I'm trying to think of new ways how I can get 
how I can talk to more of this type of people. So online, I have been trying, I, I've been working on my online, you know, they call it what digital footprint, right? Digital footprint. So what I have done is for the past year, I have decided to do a lot more in terms of more engaging in social media. And I certainly hope, I mean, my recent client last year and found me on the internet and very high net worth, successful entrepreneur. So in a way, I feel like, wow, these successful entrepreneurs in their 40s actually Google me on the internet and somehow found me on the internet and then interviewed another firm in town and then interviewed me and then chose me. So I feel like, oh, maybe that's a really good sign. For the past five years, I've been writing my blog and put it on my website and thinking, well, someday maybe some people will read, right? So I was just sowing seeds for five years. <laughs> so I was sowing seeds for five years. And then finally now, I, I think I have 2,200 connections on LinkedIn maybe 1,600 on Twitter or something. Instagram is still very low. I think I got into Instagram really late. But anyway, so I feel like the main reason is still doing a great job to get referrals from the client. However, when someone received my name from a colleague or their boss, right? They got promoted. The boss says, you should talk to Echo. I was like, and then they were like, who is Echo? And then obviously they have checked online before they make the phone call. So for me, even though they didn't find me on the internet, whatever I have done on the internet, at least attract them to come to my office for the first meeting. So I still believe that I need to continue working on, you know, getting the message out in terms of what we do well and how we serve our clients. And in terms of investment management, Michael, I took the challenge to study for CFA exam in my 40s. I can tell you that uh, a lot of people were surprised when I, when I decided to study for CFA exam when I was a partner at my former firm. I really did not need a CFA to put on my, my resume to look for a job or anything. But I think I was just really curious about uh, portfolio construction. I was reading a lot more books about, you know, using options, uh, puts and calls and all kinds of stuff. And then I, gave, I, I said to myself, oh, remember years ago, I paid for level one CFA thinking that was the exam I should take so I can change my career ended up that was not the best one in my study group. My study group, I got to tell everyone, is my goddesses of financial planning. <laughs> you may have heard of it because now it's, I think it's getting more and more famous because we are all very involved in financial planning association here in the Twin Cities. I told them I'm going to take CFA exam. I just paid for level one, all the books and stuff. And they looked at me and say, Echo, it, it may be more helpful for you to take CFP exam. <laughs> but anyway, so you can imagine that, you know, I did not take the CFA exam. And years later, I decided to do it again. And I later realized I really underestimated the time. It took more than 1000 hours. It took 
absolutely more than a thousand hours. So anyway, so investment construction, portfolio construction for me is important part of the service I offer in-house. So in a way for executives who have concentrated position like a st- employer stock, and I can customize their portfolio, be being more mindful of tax efficiency and also being mindful of what position they already own. So in a way, I I I believe that I'm offering a very comprehensive service that is very in-depth in financial planning area. And then the portfolio is customized for each household. So help me understand though, just you've said you're you're driving growth from word of mouth referrals from existing clients, you know, serve them well and they'll refer you. Lots of advisors do great work for their clients. They don't 6X their business in six years. <laughs> What's making the outcome for you different than all the other advisors who serve their clients well and hope to get referrals and are not going from 20-something million to 120 million in, in five or six years? You know, I will have to take a guess, like maybe focus on a few things I believe I do well, right? Of- Maybe I'm very consistent in terms of the message, why how, why we do what we do. So I always start with a financial plan. So I'm very consistent because if you're very consistent and you actually get paid for giving that advice, so my financial planning fees, not just one year, because for these corporate executives, they their life change, right? They, we always need to monitor stock options and be proactive when to exercise them. So in a way, I have discounted fee for the financial planning fee when we manage their investment ongoing. So like the first year, they pay me 4000 The second year, it may go down to 2200 or something. But we still work around the financial plan and continue to update that plan. So in a way, I think I'm very clear on the message that we always do financial planning very well. Of course, implementation, part of the implementation is investment management. So that's one thing I believe I probably do better than an average financial advisor is just being consistent to deliver the financial planning service as well and very proactive and pay attention to the details. And because of my tax background, I also communicate with the tax CPAs and I am being proactive to introduce to the estate attorney as we work on the insurance and estate planning. So I am, I see that maybe I'm offering a little bit more than what a traditional financial advisor is offering. So that's my guess, uh, number one. Number two, I think... The clients I have attracted, I mean, the if I look at 50 clients, right, if I look at their profile, many of them are savers. So in a way, either they are naturally a good savers or because of me, they have become better savers. You know what I mean? Just over time, they have learned more about why they need to be consistent in terms of investing in the market. And they do have, if they do have a pension, they don't have to withdraw much from the portfolio when they retire. So I 
I feel pretty grateful in terms of as I was looking at the challenge of many firms when they their clients retire and the minimum withdrawal is so big for the firm they have to go out and find new clients just to replace the distribution. At this moment, my firm clients are very young, so my average client probably fifty three. So they are very young and they are saving. They're at their like peak earning years. So I think a lot of growth in the AUM is not just from the new client. They are from the existing client. Every time they get paid bonus. Actually, today for one company, today is the bonus day. So I already have a few phone calls with. Client and say, how are you investing your bonus you just got today? You know what I'm saying. So in a way, I think the clients you choose matter because if they are consistent in terms of saving because of your coaching, and then they are able to have the income as well to save consistently over time, and they don't withdraw very. Big amount immediately after they retire. That helps, and also I have generated very great performance as well. That's another thing on the AUM. As I said, you know, 2019 was such a great year. So also a significant portion was growth of the market. And and why is it so much faster growth for you now than like the preceding ten years in in the LPL days? You know, at the LPL, I actually grew to close to I would say eighty million when I left, because that decade, many earlier clients simply kind of drop off because they were, they were. They, for example, there are some people. Remember, I open accounts without any minimum, and their income level is not high at all. So after a decade、uh, with my former firm, because. I my focus was corporate executives, so in a way, you know, some earlier client did not continue to be my client, and then of course when I leave that firm, a lot of people, even though I was managing, I would say above eighty million at that time when I left, it's not as simple as people will just come with you. What I have learned, this is something maybe your listeners can take from them too. Is you must be prepared if they don't come with you. What are you going to do? Because for me, the good scenario is what if the fifty-five million came over, right? You know, you know what I'm saying, Michael. If 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 fifty-five million came over, I didn't have to suffer for six months, right? <laughs> Remember my suffering for six months. <laughs> so, so in a way, I had to be prepared for something that's not as ideal. No matter how I do it, you know, sometimes things don't turn out exactly like what I had planned. But things could be a lot worse if nobody came with me, right? So, in a way, I think the the good news for me was the people chose to come with me. Maybe the first six months, they are normally very influential people. They are the advocates for me, meaning that I get a lot more referrals from the first fifteen clients who decided to come with me because, in a way, they have demonstrated that they didn't even care where I would have my office. They practically said, you know, Echo, I I don't care. I just know that you have done great work for me. I 
I will sign the paper. Tell me where to sign the paper. So, so I think it is critical to have that trusting relationship and nurture it. And most challenging times, that's when they really need us, right? They need our services. And I think over the market downturn, you know, the global crisis, 2008 and 2009, I probably had really demonstrated what I have done for them that helped them, that served them well during the downturn. And a few very high net worth clients just decided to come with me. I think that helped me a lot from the beginning. So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? Ah, let's see. Surprise me. Hmm. If I think back the five years, this this five years, right? What surprised me would be how little I thought I had accomplished on a quarterly ba- basis. But then now I have five and a half years to look back. I actually has accomplished so much. So Michael, talking to you right now, I realize I need to give myself more credit for what I have done. <laughs> I'm just, I am just trying to be honest because I, I, t- I try my best. Like I, I would put in 120% if I believe in something and I'm very like strong-willed. You know, not many people can stop me from what I decided to do. So I think we're getting that feeling get hearing that feeling, you right? talking about the, the journey. <gasps> right. So in a way, I, I'm also very critical of myself. The loneliness for me during this journey is I have my one side of my brain debating with my other side of the brain constantly because when I am a solo owner of this firm, when I made such a big transition, I, I, I feel like I'm a planner. I should be planning meticulously every single step, right? So I'm very careful in planning. But at some point, you need to pull the trigger and you actually have to act. So my left brain and my right brain could be debating, but then I, nobody is going to tell me when I need to take, uh, make a decision. And ultimately, I have to do that. So I remind myself sometimes, I say, you know what? Nothing is going to be perfect. Don't even start out thinking it's going to work exactly as what you have planned. My principle is be adaptable. So be adaptable. And if I have a new idea, remember, I have several problems I want to solve, and I would come up with you know several alternatives. And then I try to analyze it as a pros and cons. And then maybe I talk to a few people I consider would be experts, right? And then in the end, I have to decide for myself, for my own firm, which solution makes more sense. And then I just need to go for it. But I give myself the freedom to pivot. I give myself the time to come back one day and, mon- and, and assess the situation and say, you know, is this something that is, is, is it on track or off track? By how much? Is this still a good decision? Is this something that's completely failed? And I just need to pivot and go to a different direction. And I constantly remind myself, even during very bad days, I need to tell myself, this is a temporary situation. It's not permanent. And if I give myself 
what grace <laughs> I need to forgive myself for making certain mistakes, and I I think the journey is a lot better. So talking to you and listening to your podcast sometimes kind of learn about other pain points people go through, and when I when I encounter that, I just say you know I'm not alone. So what was the low point for you on this career journey? Career, I would say. The last two years at my former firm, when when I didn't feel that I could make a change, but I saw that saw what I have done for that firm like my baby. It's very difficult when you when you feel that at the beginning of that journey merger, I felt I could take the firm to a totally different level in terms of. Innovation and technology, in terms of using e-money to deliver services to corporate executives, so I had a very big dream early on how to make this work as a team. But when things didn't go well as expected, I I think I was extremely emotional to get to the point where I felt this has ended badly, and I needed a. Divorce from this business—it was such a struggle. So I would say my low point would be, you know, if you are talking about tears, I probably cry several times. You know, it just didn't feel good that I have to give up something I believed very strongly and couldn't convince the other people to do the way I want to do it. So that was my low point. Professionally, I would say personally. Personally, it's my own divorce. During this journey, and it's not something I was comfortable saying, but I also need to come to a place where I need to acknowledge. Similarly, when a marriage didn't work, as I said, you know, at some point you know when it's not working, because it's just like shoes. You know, when you wear a pair of shoes, they're uncomfortable. People can't tell, but you know. So. So for me, that will. So I would say personally, my low point was divorce and moving on. I guess particularly in in the context of the firm, when there's all these changes going on and new people coming in, like how do you get to that dividing line or point of saying just okay, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to change and become the thing I want it to become. I'm, I'm just actually going to have to cut the cord and leave. Like, was there a a, a transition moment or an event or something? What what gets you over that line? Is are you t- talking about the thing leaving the last firm and start f- yeah again? Okay, here's how I feel. If if every day when I get up, if I feel joyful, looking forward to a new day, either I have new ideas to do things or I have meet new people that I you know can learn from and cherish. I. I can feel it. I get up. I can feel this is going to be a good day. But if constantly I have trouble just dragging myself to go to my office and thinking, what problem am I going to have right now? It, it just—it's the mindset. So once in a while, I I re-examine myself and say, am I actually really happy going to work? Because money at some point is enough, right? You know, as we all know. You know, you you want to have enough time to do the thing you enjoy, and you want to make enough money to pay bills. 
there is at some point money is part of the equation for happiness, but there are many other things that could make you happy. So for me, it's really important for me to re-examine my work life. Truly important because I enjoy what I do. So I need to re- look at it. Do I enjoy going to work? Do I enjoy the what I think? Do people around me respect me in terms of if I bring up a new idea? Do I have the room to try something new and be able to fail and still get up and do something? So I I think it's really important for me to feel that the work environment is positive, the positive vibe. For me, anyway, is so important for me to be positive and creative. And when I didn't sense that, especially if I have a conversation, multiple conversation, in terms of bringing ideas about technology changes or compensation structure or business ownership succession plan, if things are not working well and I didn't see progress for a long period of time, that's when I have decided that it's probably not gonna change. For the following six months, if I only try for nine months, so so at some point I have to call it quit. And、uh, in terms of taking risk, the re- the way I view risk may be a little bit different than some people. So I can share with you how I view risk. The way I take risk, I always believe if I know what I want, and I have done enough fact finding. And I have done analysis to see what the, what is the worst scenario, what could happen. It it's a calculated risk I'm taking. It's not reckless. I'm not taking reckless risk just to see what happens. So for me, if I am able to use my brain and knowledge and consult experts to make these important decisions, I am taking calculated risk. And in my life, I have done it many times. So, if I believe in myself that this is better than not doing anything different, so not doing anything different is a choice, right? Is a choice you don't because risk. Oh, it's scary. So I'm not doing anything. I'm doing the same thing over and over again, and hope maybe it will turn out to be different, like a better result. So I think not doing anything in my mind is actually taking more risk. Because sometime down the road, you may reflect and say, "Why didn't I do anything about it?" Because we don't know how long we're gonna live. And for me, I just question if I'm not in a happy place. I would ask myself if I have five years to live, or one even one year to live, especially with the pandemic. Right? You ask yourself a question and say, "Do I am I happy where I am in terms of work?" And personal life, and friendship, and family life, and if I don't, if I'm not happy, I want to identify why. But then I ultimately need to make a decision: should I be taking some kind of risk to change it? So that's my view of you know taking risks and maybe not really jumping off the cliff. You know, not exactly jumping off the cliff without a parachute. But that's how I kind of view it. I think my personal life experience coming from China. And experiencing dramatic changes when I was growing up probably gave me some guiding principles, and I decided to write a book about it. Own your future, 
one woman story of immigration and financial freedom. So I spent a year to a year and a half, and the book was released last month. So I'm hoping people can can check check the check out the book because my first purpose of writing the book is to educate and inspire more people to start personal financial planning now. And the second purpose is to encourage more women to get into personal wealth management because the only 23% of CFP professionals are women 20 years ago when I passed my exam. And I think it's still at 23% for women. And so that is my second pur- purpose of laying out. I So I told my story about my personal experience in the first two chapters, but the remaining chapter is to lay out the financial planning framework from the point of view of fiduciary financial advisor like me. So it's it's a way, one way for me to educate the public and also talk about different tools to use to make financial life simple so that they can make wise decisions. So that's where I, I'm very passionate about sharing lessons I have learned and guiding principles I use in life in this book. So hopefully people can learn from this book, especially during this kind of pandemic, when people are not very hopeful about their future. And I have very low, uh, you know, in terms of down days, certainly I worry about money every single day, the first three and a half years uh, when I was a student in this new country. So I know how hard it is to face without much money. So hopefully this book will give people more hope. So what advice would you give other young advisors looking to get started and and build credibility? And I'm, I'm thinking particularly from the context of when they're coming to the table as as minorities, whether that's you know women as a gender minority in our industry, racial minorities, being an immigrant, as you said, you have the triple minority phenomenon. It's hard enough building credibility when you're getting started in the business. What advice do you have for minorities in particular trying to build credibility and get going early on? My first advice is get respect education and get as much education as you can. You know, my example is, you know, certified financial planner is probably a very good education program for everybody who's serious about this business. So I would encourage that. And learning is continuing uh, education. It's not, it doesn't stop by the time you get one destination. So another advice I want people to know is you, you must believe in yourself. You are good enough. And if I had to tell my younger self, you know, if I go back to the days that I was very conscious about my Chinese accent, I had a hard time picking up a phone to answer a phone because I just was concerned that people wouldn't understand me. So I would be a very terrible person to do cold calling. So anyway, if you believe in yourself, you have the knowledge, you have the training, and you are passionate about helping people. Now is about learning more about what education and skills you need to obtain by networking and 
uh, become maybe a member of Financial Planning Association because I certainly believe that my involvement in FPA has helped me build network of other financial advisors. I can share experiences. And without these people, I, I probably made even more mistakes on my own. So in a way, I, I think it's really important for them to know that they need to allow them to make some mistake. It's okay. In terms of where to start, I really want to give more employment opportunities to people like that who want to help people. So I certainly would encourage these younger people and say, you know what, there are a lot more independent RAA firms now compared to 20 years ago. So I would say, go and start knocking on the doors or like me, look, go on the Google or internet and start picking a phone and start talking to some people. And if you make 10 phone calls, you probably end up with, you know, five conversations and then maybe turn up with two meetings. It's okay, right? Because you, you learn about what they do and you can certainly ask for advice and say, have a coffee. So I would say be adaptable, believe in yourself and respect education. I love it. Be, be adaptable, believe in yourself and respect education. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you, know, you, you built this successful advisory firm and it, and it sounds like still in the early stages of what you wanted to become from your Salesforce infrastructure plans. But I, I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, success to me is to live purposefully every day and have the freedom to choose what I want to do, including helping people with money, pursuing my hobbies, such as like ballroom dancing and playing piano, travel around the world. Ultimately, I really want to help more people take the complexity out of wealth management by growing my team and sharing my knowledge with more people. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes for you from here. Maybe we'll, we'll get to have you back in a couple of years and you can talk about what it's like with the, the next doubling or two of your firm as you continue down this trajectory. Oh, I would be glad to. And I need, I need to recruit more members to join my team. So if I have a plug here, I would say, please check out my company website. And I also have my personal website in the show note and connect with me on LinkedIn. And if people who are interested in working for my firm, let me know because I right now in my mind, I need to c- keep meeting new people and finding the right people to join my team. So for those of you who are listening, this is episode 195. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 195, we'll have uh, links out to Echo's website and LinkedIn profile if you want to connect. Thank you so much, Echo, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.